0: Afternoon, evening, whenever you happen to be listening to this podcast, good, whatever it is to you, welcome to episode 381 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to the first week, the first episode. Of Edgar August Poe Month, where we're going to be talking about nothing but films relating to Edgar Allan Poe for at least four weeks this month here on Monster Kid Radio. I'm excited to have you on board and I'm excited to have this week's guest on board. It's Dr. Drek, Michael Leggy. I have had him on the show before and I love having him on the show and I look forward to having him on the show again. The movie that we're talking about is a movie from 1935. It's called The Crime of Dr. Crespi. It's come up in conversation a couple of times here on the podcast, and Michael's actually kind of responsible for that. So we're going to talk about that when I have him here on the show here shortly to talk about the film and a few other things that are going on in the world of Dr. Drek. Also in this episode of Monster Kid Radio, a brand new segment is making its debut. You're going to have to just sit tight and listen for it, but it features... Our good friend, Kenny Blows. Kenny is awesome. Ken is the man. Those of you who were at Monster Bash uh, about a month and a half ago now might remember that when I got my award, somebody hopped up on stage and started talking about how awesome Monster Kid Radio and the B-Moviecast were, that sort of thing. That was him. That was Ken. Ken's awesome. I need to have him on the show again proper to talk about a movie. But in the meantime, we've got this really cool segment that he's debuting this time around. Lots of other things to talk about this time around, uh, especially when it comes to Jeff Pullier's Weird Wednesday report. I'm going to cut in on that. And you know, let's just get to all of that right after this.
1: You will freeze as you watch a warped scientist become transformed into a godless beast when his bloody scalpel probes the forbidden secrets of a woman's flesh. In Atom Age Vampire, you will flame for the stark ritual of a beautiful girl's last searing dance as tragedy forever mars her loveliness, leaving her to face a world of terror I give you my word that I will restore your face. Restore all your beauty. You will cringe as the Demented Doctor experiments with a girl's trusting innocence. But to possess the living miracle wrought by his twisted genius, he must forever sacrifice his soul to the cunning gods of evil. I'll transplant directly from another human being. A mad creature born of the atomic age, now shackled to a world of rotting bodies and violent death. A saddest, a criminal, a depraved animal, more ferocious than Jekyll, more monstrous than Frankenstein, more bloody than Dracula. No. 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 Fire a volley through the windowpane. You will gasp as lust and madness stalk the darkened screaming night in Adam Age Vampire. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors.
2: Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, the Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game.
3: My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get
2: Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link.
1: I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please, come again. And remember, the Chamber is always waiting for its next victim.
4: The Long Hair of Death. Our story takes place at the end of the 15th century, a time when the powers of darkness were at their strongest. And man lived in fear of the unknown. A time when witch burning was a common occurrence. A public spectacle. The long hair of death. The long hair of death. A film that will chill your spine and keep you gripped in your seat as you watch one of the most incredible stories of all time unfold before your eyes. You will see how the curse of a dying witch comes true as a village is ravaged by the plague and a man is hounded by his conscience and driven to commit one foul murder after another as he tries to satisfy his warped ambition. Unusual, unforgettable film. Do not miss the long hair of death.
3: calling with a weird Wednesday report. And last Wednesday was one of my favorite horror movies. It was La L'Enboche de Valpozis, or the American title, Werewolf vs. the Vampire Women. That's right. It is a Paul Nash movie from 1971, where he plays the great werewolf Valdemar Dominski. And, oh man, this is a movie I love. This may have been the first Daschie movie I saw a couple years ago and what turned me into such a Nasty man. In this movie, uh, uh, Aspininsky, he's uh, living what he hopes is a secluded life uh, in a castle. These two women students come to the area. They're looking into the history of the Countess Elizabeth Beclery, who may have been a vampire, and turns out she was. And, oh man, it's just so good directed by the great Leon Kavinsky and I, I just don't have much I don't have much more I can say about it with you know it's just, it's just gonna be superlative after superlative because I love this movie so much I love the acting in it because it's a Disney movie it's kind of a sequel to other movies so it actually starts off with him being resurrected because I don't think I've seen one of these movies where he doesn't end up dead <laughs> So the first thing that happens is you know they they find a way to resurrect him and then it jumps forward in time a little bit and of course you know he he falls in love with one of the two women students that comes to his area the other one ends up as the vampire and it, as the title says it is the werewolf versus vampire women so you get some some actual fighting like that now the Spanish title uh, La noche de los I can understand why they didn't just translate that into English, it means the night of Alpergis, and Alpergis is a German saint. No one in America would know who that is. All Purchase night is April 30th to be first, it's that night time. That just, that wouldn't mean anything to an American audience. They wear versus first the vampire woman, exactly what it says on the tin. So anyway, it's in the public domain, of course, you know, it's a weird Wednesday, most of those things are in public domain. So you can catch it on YouTube, you could probably catch it on Hulu or something like that. I highly recommend this movie. Tonight, tonight, this is Wednesday, tonight, Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D at
0: the Joy Cinema. Okay, I am going to cut in right here. Actually, this episode is going out Wednesday night, Thursday morning, and I spent Wednesday evening at around 9.15 or so at the Joy Cinema, where I actually was able to get to the weird Wednesday screening of Creature from the Black Lagoon. Man, that was a lot of fun. Jeff Martin, the man who runs the Joy Cinema, asked me to hop up on stage to talk about the movie. I was thrilled to do so. I love doing this i love introducing films and kind of hosting these things it was a real treat to do so now i recorded it with my video camera and my portable recorder and i'm gonna try to turn part of this into a youtube video so stay tuned for that that'll be coming eventually uh, maybe within the next week or so what i did not do though is record with jeff polyer about his thoughts on the movie because well, I like it when he calls in for the Weird Wednesday report. Jeff, thank you for always doing this. As far as last week's movie, the Paul Nashi film, glad you had an awesome time. I know I told you about some Paul Nashi stuff that I've got cooking. Stay tuned. We'll talk about that here in a few weeks here on Monster Kid Radio.
1: How much, Jack? You he think's he's in that strong box? Um, there's plenty of Cuban sugar, though. Here's what happened: the general beat his friend Castro to the Cuban treasury. The strong box is now on this boat. So are a deported American gangster and his mall. And lurking in the depths is the creature from the haunted sea. You're a crazy mixed-up kid.
5: I am perfectly adjusted to my life of crime.
6: Don't worry, Mary Bell.
1: I'll save you.
7: It's all right. Be calm, everybody. The boat's insured.
1: Bigfoot is more than a legend. Something that walks upright like man is stalking our forests. Something is leaving huge unexplainable footprints all over the face of our earth. The legend of McCullough's Mountain, filmed in color where it happened. The legend of McCullough's Mountain. They swear to God it's true. Rated G.
6: Monster Kid Radio Heads, This is Kenny and we're starting a new feature here on Monster Kid Radio. We're going to take a closer look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. For us first and second generation Monster Kids, most of us, Famous Monsters of Filmland was a magazine that really influenced our life and really helped us to keep that Monster Kid fandom going week after week, month after month as new issues came out through several decades. We were just happy to have that magazine. And I wanted to take some time to take a closer look at it, uh, look at the films that Derek and his friends are covering and how they were featured in Famous Monsters. And also, I want to do like a classic five. Every two weeks, I hope to do a special look at five issues of Famous Monsters, starting with issue number one and looking at five issues at a time, the best first famous firsts and other highlights of that great magazine. Today we're going to look at uh, Edgar Allan Poe's movies and let's take a look at those right now, how they were featured in Famous Monsters of Filmland. This first film that we're going to look at is The Crime of Dr. Crespi. And looking through the index of the Famous Monsters Chronicles, this movie had never really got a feature, uh, any mention in Famous Monsters, but in my a look at Famous Monsters. I've been going through each issue and indexing every issue, every photo, every ad, every article. Um, I have found two pictures. I'm only up to issue number 10, and we already have two pictures from this movie uh, Eric von Stronheim, and he's on page 21 of issue number 6 and on page 20 of issue number 10. So we have those pictures, and uh, again, it's never been featured or talked about in, in an article. But we do have some pictures, and there might be some more coming along as I go into indexing the pictures. The next movie, Tales of Terror. It was featured on the cover of issue number 19, which came out in September of 1962. And it was basically a preview. That's when the movie came out. And on that cover was Basil Rathbone, Peter Lorre, and Vincent Price. And on page 22 of that issue, there was a five-page article that gave the synopsis, spoilers abound. Uh, of the, all three of the stories and then ends with these lines. Poe's Tales of Terror is in Panavision and color and gives every promise of being another hit equal to House of Usher and the premature burial. Don't miss it. There are nine photos, including two gruesome photos, one of uh, Vincent Price holding Peter Laurie's decapitated head and the famous shot of a melting Vincent Price Choking Basil Rathbone, I remember that giving me chills since I was a little kid. That's how that movie, Tales of Terror, was featured in Famous Monsters of Filmland, issue number 19. The next movie for this month, Castle of Blood. It was featured in Monster World, number one. Monster World? I thought we were talking about Famous Monsters. Well, Monster World was actually a sister magazine of Famous Monsters. It came out in the mid-60s, and it was based on the popular demand that people wanted more Famous Monsters, and instead of going monthly with Famous Monsters, they decided to make a whole new magazine called it Monster World. And that magazine came out with 10 issues and then was stopped. Then later on, because Forrest J. Ackerman and publisher James Warren wanted to get to Famous Monsters 100 faster, they decided to insert uh, Monster World, those 10 Monster World editions, in the number 70 slot of Famous Monsters. So when you have Famous Monsters, you go up to 69, and then it jumps to issue number 80, with those 10 Monster Worlds fitting into that slot, so they could get to the 100th issue faster. So in Monster World number 1, we see this Italian film, The Castle of Blood. And I thought it was really interesting what's said here. So I just want to read what it says. It's a brief mention of it in their Coming Features article that is just about every Famous Monsters had an article uh, where they would talk about movies that were coming up. So here's what it says about the Castle of Blood. The Castle of Blood brings back popular heroine Barbara Steele of Black Sunday and Pit and the Pendulum fame in a terror tale of the living dead who changed places and love only for blood said to be based on a story by Poe, which, one, at this writing, we don't yet know. Along with many of you, we probably will know by the time this appears in print, but we have constantly to remind the younger ones among our readers that it takes about eight weeks to get this information into print. And even if you read the magazine on the first day of its release, already two months have gone by and many new facts have been learned. For instance, by the time this issue appears on the stands, we'll probably know if... Dimensions in Death, starring Barbara Steele in a film based on a story by Poe, is a different picture altogether or simply another title for The Castle of Blood. So I thought that was kind of interesting. They're kind of explaining the process. They did not know at the time when they printed this short mention of this movie what Poe's story it was based on. I'm sure Derek and his guests will let us know which one it is. and is. I'm excited. I've never even heard of this movie. But it was right there in Monster World Number One. And last but not least, we have Murders in the Rue Morgue, a classic Bela Lugosi movie, and that was featured in Famous Monsters Number Sixty Four, and that was released in April nineteen seventy. And this classic film got an eight-page film book. They called it a film book. And basically, what it is is the entire story, very detailed, even with parts of the dialogue transcribed and giving a detailed look at the movie. And, of course, it sounds like spoiler town, but in those days, you know, it wasn't like you'd have that movie or be able to get it on a DVD or stream it or anything. You were lucky if it came on TV. And so, for us, the Monster Kids of this generation, it was sometimes the only way that we knew anything about the movie, and we were happy to read about it with the pictures. There were eight pictures included with this article, and we... It made it a lot of fun just to know what the movie was about and see the pictures. And if we did get a chance to see it in our childhood, it was the best. Even though we knew what the story was, it still scared us. And I was very, very frightened by this film when I was a kid, especially when the uh, body falls in the fireplace. That was a horrible, nightmarish scene for me, but I loved every minute of it. So that's our look at... The Erica Avalon Poe films that we are covering this month on Monster Kid Radio and how they appeared in Famous Monsters of Filmland. I hope you enjoy this feature. I hope to be doing more of these. Another thing I'd like to do, and I need your help of course, is a little segment on Famous Monsters and you. I want to hear what your first Famous Monsters magazine was and how Famous Monsters influenced your life. So let's get together and share our memories of famous monsters. So This is Kenny signing off for Monster Kid Radio. Again, I hope you enjoyed it. Hope to hear from you. And take it away, Derek.
8: For years I have searched for a unique way whereby a motion picture audience can actually decide the climax of a picture. I have found such a way. My latest picture, Mr. Sodonicus, offers something no audience has ever had before. The power to determine the fate of a character on the screen. The power to punish. In ancient Rome, spectators could decree life or death to a gladiator by indicating thumbs up or thumbs down during the French Revolution the mobs could condemn a man by merely shouting to the guillotine In the early West vigilantes took the law into their own hands today for the first time the awful power to punish will be yours after you see the evil events that made mr. Sodonicus what he was you will decide what should be done to him you will now see some scenes from the picture. The face of Mr. Sardonicus will not be shown because I realize that some people in this audience might be adversely affected by it. Those of you who come to see Mr. Sardonicus will understand why.
5: Mr. Sardonicus, what makes his name strike terror? Sardonicus? Why were you frightened? Ah, sir, you would not understand. You are young. You do not yet have daughters. Why does his wife live in abject fear?
1: If you do not heal him, he will punish me.
5: Surely he wouldn't beat you.
1: His cleverness knows a more hideous torture.
5: What strange attraction did young women have for him? What secrets are hidden behind his doors? Mr. Sardonicus. His deeds form the fabric of nightmares. His face, the face of Sardonicus, can be described only in the eyes of its beholders.
8: (coughs) Mr. Sodonicus, in spite of all his cruelties, some people will think he deserves mercy. Others will feel that no punishment could be too severe. When you come to see Mr. Sodonicus, you will receive a, a ballad like this, At a certain point in the picture, you will vote thumbs up or thumbs down. His punishment will depend on the result of your vote.
7: ...man who must kill to live. He is 104 years old.
1: Your eyes? What's wrong with your eyes?
7: Yes, look at him well. This thief of time, this man who could cheat death, who knows the secret of immortality.
1: I've been taking this fluid every six hours now. It's madness. It is what keeps me alive. So you see, you must operate. You know what will happen
7: if you don't. Yes. You will die. Liar. Cheat. Murderer. Offender against nature and God. See the liquid that cheats death. See what he steals from the tissues of his victims so that he may never grow old and never die. No, no. No,
5: don't. Don't do it.
7: Anton Differing is the man trapped by his own fearful invention. Hazel Court, the girl who knows his love, but not his shocking secret. George,
1: I love you so much.
7: Christopher Lee, the doctor who gleans the monstrous truth and must
4: submit to blackmail to save the girl he loves. If you perform this operation and perform it successfully, I shall really it. If you don't perform this operation, Or if anything should happen to me while you're operating. Janine will not be seen by you or anyone else again.
9: So, Christopher, what insanity are you up to today?
3: Oh, hey, Lydia, I'm downloading some movies.
9: What? (laughs) People are always telling me that's illegal.
3: Uh Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's
9: Island. Let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available.
3: Yeah, but... There are so many. I wish there's a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time.
9: Um, Christopher, there is. We do one.
3: <laughs> oh, that's
9: right. We
3: host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. Huh, that sure is nice of us.
9: <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show?
3: Oh, we'll do. Let's see, that's at OrphanEntertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday?
9: Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher, we'll see.
10: I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited Monster Kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a
0: movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines monster kid radio listeners it is edgar august poe here on monster kid radio all through the month of august we are doing nothing but edgar Allan poe i'm hesitant to say adaptations but movies influenced by edgar Allan poe and i wanted to start this month with my friend dr dreck michael leggi how you doing sir
2: I'm fine. I'm still here, and I'm above ground, so...
0: <laughs> you know, this is a podcast. I can't, It's an audio show. I can't see you, so for all I know, you're recording from a coffin somewhere. Yeah,
2: I actually am. I'm just brushing the dirt off me right now. W-
0: watch out for those bald Austrian, you know, surgeons, you know... <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> and don't hire him as a chauffeur, either.
0: no. No. <laughs> I'm so thrilled to have you on and to kick off the month with you because the movie that we're talking about this time around is a movie that I never even heard of until you mentioned it years ago when I had you on the show for something else. The Crime of Dr. Crespi, which is a kind of sort of maybe adaptation of Premature Burial by Edgar Allan Poe. Kind of. Sort of. Maybe. Kinda. Just basically, you
2: can boil it down to the two words of premature burial, is about the only relation it has to the Poe story.
0: Up to and including the fact that they misspell Edgar Allan Poe's name in the credits and in the title card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They spelled his middle name A L L E N, and it's actually A N. Yeah. 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 But it was such a cool film. And when you brought it up, I thought, okay, I need to add it to my list of movies that I need to see. But. You know, as any monster kid or movie fan, you know, we've got that huge list and that huge stack of physical media and stuff in our to watch list. I didn't know when I was going to get to it until one year at the Northwest Film Center here in Portland. I think it was White Zombie they were showing. And as part of that, they decided to play The Crime of Dr. Crespi. And I got really excited because I remember you talking about it. So I got to see it for the first time in a theater setting. And it may have even been a film print as opposed to a video projection. So mm. it it looked about as good as you're probably going to get these days. It was fantastic. And I fell in love with the movie. And I, I got to tell you, I thank you so much for putting that on my radar. Because honestly, I don't know if I would have stuck around after White Zombie if I didn't know anything about it. So good. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's one of those movies you just uh, happen to come across and say, what's this? Right. Um, <laughs> all I know is it's Eric von Stroheim. He must be bad. Right. So. <laughs> But it's, it's an unusual movie. Republic is the one that handled it. I'm not sure if they actually made it or they distributed it. It was shot in New York. Yeah. At the Biograph Studio.
0: Which, you know, is, is a, a studio that did a lot of silent films back in the day. Uh, I think Griffith worked for them and a whole bunch of others. To have it shot there, maybe that's part of the reason why it's not as well known. It didn't come out of the Hollywood. I, I don't know. I don't know either, but what one of the things
2: that occurred to me was that uh, the nominal hero in it is Dwight Fry, good old Dwight Fry. And since they were in New York, it makes me wonder if he was doing a play at the same time that they were shooting that.
0: You know, he did a lot of stage work, uh, and, yeah. and I would love to have seen some of his stage work because – I mean, he's just a phenomenal actor and unfortunately ended up, well, unfortunately for him, I guess, fortunately for us, because we could see him in our monster movies. But he ended up getting kind of typecast and stuck in these monster roles. And my understanding is that he wasn't overly excited about that.
2: No, I, you're not going understand that as an actor. And he was known, I guess, primarily on stage for comedy roles. And you can see that in some of his monster roles, like Fritz.
10: Oh yeah. That he had
2: a comedic touch. I always would have loved to have seen him in a out and out comedy with him in it.
0: You know, he looks like he's kind of built for comedy. Like he's got the face for it. He's got like the body type. He could probably do a little bit of physical comedy, but mostly seems kind of like a, a witty guy. I would have loved to have seen
2: that. And Bride of Frankenstein, too is Carl. I think Carl is funny. Oh
0: yeah. Oh he's great. <laughs> it was a nice fresh one. <laughs> He always played – I mean, he, he made his characters so – I'm not going to say likable because Fritz is pretty despicable, but they felt real. They, they felt like somebody that that belonged there. So many times with especially the earlier ones, I feel like Universal would, might have like a little subplot with like a, a random couple that turns up like in The Black Cat. That just doesn't really have anything to – doesn't really need to be there. Just, just kind of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Manners played a lot of characters like that. Yeah but I felt like Dwight belonged in those movies because he made them belong. He was just such a good actor. Yeah. If you don't know
2: him and you put up, let's say three pictures of him as Fritz Renfield and Carl, you wouldn't even know it was the same person because he looks so different in all those roles.
0: Right. Yeah. Just physically he transformed himself. Yeah. And I, I love his work in Dracula so much because of the three that you just mentioned, he has an arc. I mean, it's a, it's a, depressing arc it's sad you know what happens to him but he starts as one character and he does have a journey that he goes through. with the other two um uh, you know he's kind of just the same guy I and mean, that's still fine he's great but it, as a renfield man you really feel for him
2: yeah yeah i think one of the ironies of his uh life was the probably one of the last movies he did was dead men walk with george zuko and his mm-hmm. character is a combination of fritz and renfield really I hadn't really thought about that but you're right yeah Huh. He's a hunchback, and he's he talks and acts like Renfield. <laughs> it's a two for one sale.
0: I've seen that movie, but I don't think I've seen it since I've talked about it here on the show years ago. I guess I will have to put that on the to-watch list again. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's just kind of ironic and sad at the same time. Yeah,
0: this film though is where he got his highest billing.
2: Yeah, and I think I can't think of any other movie where you could even think of him as the good guy or the hero. And even in this, he's not quite the average type of hero. He's the one that kind of unearths the uh, plot that uh, Stroheim <laughs> had come up with.
0: No pun intended. Huh? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> well, he gets himself locked in a closet for all of his trouble. But
0: he was just um,
2: somebody that could, I think, play most anything if he was given the chance. He just had that type of personality for, from what I could see. Because he could be bad, he could be good, he could be funny, he could be scary. But we don't get to see that very much.
0: I I agree with you. We certainly have some enjoyment, I suppose, with some of the more crazy aspects with Renfield. But I don't really feel like we're able to laugh at him or laugh along with him because it's still unnerving. So yeah, I, I wish there was more for us to be able to see captured on film. But I mean, he really makes this film a place for him to stand out. I I feel like you're right. He's kind of the unlikely hero. He is the one who figures everything out and gets taken out of a good chunk of the movie for his troubles. (laughs) And I I do like the the journey his character goes on, you know, towards the end, you can kind of see the turn in his personality. He's no longer cowering to the authority figure and he's taking some initiative with his love life. And it's just, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, um, I just always feel so bad for him, for, for Dwight Fry. There's just some people that, you know, you wish you could go in and get in a time machine and go, go in and fix their lives <laughs> somehow. <laughs> you know, uh, I I wish that too with Vaughn Chaney Jr. And, you know, I go back to him and say, lay off the bottle, Lon. You'll do a lot better if you lay off the bottle.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's just things like that that are kind of sad when you see uh, a lot of these guys. But, I mean... For all their um, work, he would probably be flabbergasted to know how revered he is now.
0: I would think so, too.
2: As and he's an icon, really.
0: He's- he really is. I mean, I know that the mainstream crowd associates the hunchback assistant for Frankenstein with Igor. But yeah. Fritz was the hunchback. Fritz was the guy. He's the one that set the mold, and it wouldn't have been set the way that it was if not for Dwight Frye he he's definitely, like you said, he's an icon. He's an essential part of monster movie dumb. Without him, I think it'd be a little different. The, the landscape would be a little bit different.
2: Yeah. I mean, Dracula, the movie wouldn't be nearly as good if he wasn't in it.
0: I mean, yeah. Renfield is our entry point. He's our audience participatory character at the beginning of the movie. The things that happened to Renfield happened to us because of Dwight Fry.
2: Yeah. Wherever you are, Dwight, <laughs> <laughs> we remember you.
0: We, we do. We do indeed. We're talking about Dwight Fry and Fritz and Carl and, and the characters that he played in these movies. And it reminds me of something. I have a question in the Classic Five deck asking people who they prefer. Renfield as Fritz or Renfield as uh, – I'm sorry. Dwight Fry as Fritz and Dwight, or Dwight <laughs> Fry as – you know what I mean. Which world do you prefer? I'm just going gonna, gonna to leave that in because, yeah, anyway. Uh, and speaking of the Classic Five, I'd love to play around with you, Michael. Okay. So I have – the new deck. Now, some of the questions have been heard before, uh, but when I say the new deck, they're actually a physical deck that I now have available for sale. People can add these to their home collection if they want to play the Classic Five at home. Uh, This is a combination here of the core deck, which has 75 cards in it, the Hammer Expansion, which has 25 cards in it, and the Universal Expansion that has 25 cards in it. I'm going to give it one more quick shuffle, and we're going to play the Classic Five. Are you ready, sir? I am ready. All right. First card right off the top. If you could swap places with any character from a classic monster movie, who would it be?
2: Oh boy, any character. Hmm, that's interesting. Sandor in Dracula's
0: Daughter. (laughs) Why Sandor? Because I would get to hang around with Dracula's Daughter. (laughs) Hey, there you go. (laughs) That is a good answer, sir. I like it. Alright, <laughs> card number two What's your favorite Lon Chaney Jr. role?
2: Well, it's got to be uh,
0: the Wolfman I think that's kind of a given yeah, I, I, I put some of these cards in here, these questions in here And I'm like, mm. come on, like anybody's going to say other than The Wolfman, so come on Card number three, what is your favorite Karloff-Legosi universal collaboration? This comes from our universal expansion deck Black Cat Oh, so good Yeah, yeah. Such a good movie God, I love that film so much
2: yeah, and they're both equal in that one. They're equals, you know, because in The Raven, Lugosi takes the the lead. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, the other one, uh, Invisible Ray, He's uh, Lugosi's not in it very much, really, even though he gives a great performance, a very subdued performance for him. And, yeah. But on The Black Cat, they're on an equal level. In The Black Cat, I think one of the Lugosi's most moving scenes that I've ever seen with, with him in it was... The scene where Karloff is showing his ex-wife in the glass uh, tomb there. And the expression on his face looking at her as Karloff is talking about her. I don't remember exactly what he says afterwards, but he says it with such emotion. Like, how did did she get like this? Or I don't know. I forgot exactly what it is. But it's a very moving part in that movie, in in The Black Cat, which still gets me when I see it.
0: It's a solid film. It is so good. And you're right. They are equals and they get to play against type. Yeah. Yeah. Whether they liked that type or not, Lugosi was oftentimes the villain and Karloff was oftentimes not. And Karloff got to play nasty and Lugosi got to try to save the day until at the end when he decides he wants to skin somebody. And that's not really something a hero does, but still, (laughs) you know,
2: (laughs) they can all have a bad day though. You
0: know? Well, that's true. That's true. (laughs) Card number four, what is your favorite Ray Harryhausen creation?
2: Creation, huh? Yeah. Talos.
0: Ooh, that's a good one.
2: I saw that in the theater, and I think even though I, I saw Seven Voyages of Sinbad 2 in the theater, but for some reason the Talos one—that creaking noise and the way it moved—and was more impressive than anything else I'd seen up to that point.
0: Good call. It's mm. a good film, and it's yeah. it's scary and majestic at the same. It's just so good. Yeah. All right. Final card, again, from the Universal deck. What is your favorite Evelyn Anchors role in a Universal film?
2: Oh, okay. Well, I guess we're back to the Wolfman.
0: <laughs>
2: Gwen, yeah? Gwen, yeah. I mean, she's good in, in everything she's done. Although, I could. Can I amend that so I don't have to use the same? Of course. She played the bad person in Weird Woman. Yes. In the Inner Sanctum. I, the only time I think I've ever seen her like that, and she was good.
0: Really good. That That is usually my answer if somebody were to ask me. Uh, I love her, is Gwen Conliff. You know, I, I think she's fantastic there, and her chemistry with Vaughn is, is sparkling there. But getting to play against type again in Weird Woman, which, from what yeah. I understand, she wasn't a big fan of, but still, she did such a great job in that movie. Really enjoyed her there. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I think uh, she said that, uh, what was it, Dan? Gwen that played opposite her in that. Yes, yeah, um, Gwen. Mm-hmm. And they were very good friends, and I guess she was uncomfortable being so mean to her. Right,
0: exactly. <laughs> I love Weird Woman. It's it's my favorite inner Sanctum film, one of my favorite Cheney films. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Well, it was a classic five. How do you feel, man? Uh, I need to recover. Okay. I'll be back in half an okay, hour. Okay. <laughs> Give me thirty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'd be halfway through the movie then. Doctor Cru- <laughs> Dr. Crespi's only an hour long.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I suppose we should tell people what it's about because sure. if they haven't heard of it, then they're really perplexed right
0: now. Came out in 1935. Uh, we we mentioned White Fry, Eric mm-hmm. von Stroheim, who is mostly known, I think, as a director. A director that gave into his excesses quite a bit and would get fired a couple of yeah. times for going over budget, keeping people on set working 20 hours straight. I mean, he just was a perfectionist man
2: yeah he was uh, I guess like the stereotypical director with a writing crop (laughs) practically yeah
0: and you can tell that in this film too because he even acts like that here right down to the, the bending at the waist to you know, to kind of, you know, salute somebody or whatever. <laughs> you know, I think. Stiff, cold,
2: stony, all those words apply to mm-hmm,
0: him. Mm-hmm. And uh, from something that I read somewhere, referred to him as being somebody who plays his cigarettes like they're a musical instrument because he is puffing away left and right in this and uh, spitting that smoke all over.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised it didn't come out of his ears.
0: <laughs> Would have been a different kind of movie then. <laughs> yeah. The movie, uh, like we said, it kind of has some inspiration coming from the premature burial, uh, which, again, really, there's a premature burial, and that's about it, (laughs) which seems to be what happens to Edgar Allan Poe properties in Hollywood around this time or even elsewhere.
2: Well, I've read the actual story, and um, strangely enough, uh, Corman's premature burial resembles it more than this. Oh, yeah. The original story is uh, the narrator first just talks about like four different instances of people that were buried alive and that he has catalepsy and he was scared to death (laughs) of uh, being buried alive. He did all the stuff that Ray Moland did in the Corman movie of rigging up his tomb so that all these various ways he could get out if they buried him alive. Mm -hmm. And then he uh, wakes up one day and he finds himself in the dark and it smells like earth and there's just above him is like this wood right above him six inches and he freaks out because he thinks he's been buried alive and what it is is that he's on a ship and he's in the bunks it's pitch black during the night and it the it smells of earth the the ship Mm -hmm. so he thought he was buried alive but he was really just on a ship and after that it's kind of the a weird upbeat poe ending he decides that he's not going to spend the rest of his life worrying about being buried alive. He's going to live his life to the fullest.
0: Are you sure that was Poe at that point? Because that's Poe. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> not really. What you expect? I know. Yeah.
2: It, it, when I read it, I said, "Wow, that's Poe with an upbeat ending, kind, I'm of, kind of, of like famous. a
0: life-affirming of, Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah. Very
2: strange, but. There's really, I mean, the only resemblance, of course, is what Stroheim does to the guy he's jealous of, mm-hmm. the Dr. Ross, I believe his name was.
0: Correct. yeah. So Dr. Crespi is the head surgeon. He is a very well-known surgeon, very skilled, best in his field. Doesn't know about the dangers of smoking, but still, he, he's kind of <laughs> <laughs> he, he is the man when it comes to this kind of thing, and he is called in to well, he's kind of coerced into helping Dr. Ross, who was in an accident. And according to the newspaper, his car turtled on the road somewhere. And uh, the car turned upside down. And the guy needed surgery. And his Wikipedia calls him the girlfriend. uh, But I thought they were married in the film. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Ross and and Estelle. They're
2: married. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Estelle wants Dr. Crespi to help. And they try to get Dr. Crespi involved. But for some reason, he doesn't want anything to do with it. No, tell her I'm not in, I'm not, I'm not available right now. There's nothing I can do until a cell actually shows up at his office. And then he has no choice but to agree to take the case. Well, it doesn't go so well for Dr. Ross at that point.
2: <laughs> yes. Dr. Crespi has this handy dandy little formula that he uses to inject the patient and to make him appear dead. And they pronounce him dead. They bring him to the morgue. And in one of the best scenes of the movie, He goes down there at night while um, Dr. Ross is coming out of the um, drug-induced haze, and he gloats over him for about three hours. (laughs) I mean, uh, (laughs) all these dynamic, frightening close-ups of Stroheim just oozing malevolence uh, and telling uh, Dr. Ross how exquisite it's going to be for him to be buried alive and suffocating and trapped and nothing he can do about it. But it's shot so eerily that uh, you don't mind that he's just going on and on about it being undiscovered. But that is the only premature burial aspect of it is that the the poor guy does get actually buried. But Mm -hmm. he's in this sort of semi-coma state that uh, Crespi's put him in.
0: Now, we do learn that Crespi has been very angry with Dr. Ross for years because Crespi and Estelle he wanted to have a relationship with her, but Estelle ended up choosing Dr. Ross and he's had this angry jealousy going on for years ever since. And this is him taking his revenge on Dr. Ross.
2: Yeah. He really knows how to carry a grudge.
0: Yeah. I mean, how long had it been at this point? (laughs) Yeah.
2: Well, you know, the thing, uh, the thing about, well, not just B movies, but I think all movies in a way you could say that if everybody, if every character in a B movie or any movie, Acted rationally, it would all be over in 10 minutes.
0: You know, I watched a number of movies this weekend, some classic films, some classic B movies, some some modern movies with my wife. And I kept thinking, you know, if you had just turned left instead of right, because that's what everybody else would do, (laughs) this problem that you're finding yourself in would not have happened. (laughs)
6: <laughs> right.
0: It'd be a boring movie. But, yeah. you know, it's... It would be a fast know, movie. It yes. would be very fast. I mean, most of these these horror stories happen because a character made the wrong decision somewhere along the line. Right. Or even right before the film started, and we're seeing the consequences of those wrong decisions. So, I get it for the drama, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it could apply that to just about any
2: movie, not just B-movies.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. When you
2: think about it, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at this particular one, when uh, Dr. Crespi knows that he's going to you know, bump off his, his rival, he writes out the death certificate ahead of time, with the time of death. And then when uh, Dwight Fry, who plays Dr. Thomas, comes in and asks him, uh, will you make out the death certificate? Stroheim in front of him just pulls it out and gives it to him all prepared. Like, boy, that's a giveaway, isn't it? Yeah. He, knew he was going to die at 6.15.
0: Especially since at the beginning of the film, the first time we see Dr. Thomas, Dwight Fry's character, it's him coming in to ask Dr. Crespi to prepare a death certificate for him. And he's not 100% sure about when the time of death was and dr crespi is like we have to be precise we can't just say around 345 when it just really lays into him about how exact yeah. it has to be so to have a, a prepared death certificate in advance <laughs> eh, not exactly yeah
2: <laughs> boy he's a really good doctor huh? yeah
0: <laughs> he's very precise <laughs> he's pre-precise
2: <laughs> and then of course uh poor uh, Dwight goes in and accuses him of all that just so he can get locked in a closet beat up and locked in a closet for a while when he probably should have just gone to the police but then again that would be the rational thing to do right and then uh, Dr. Crespi unties him later and just says don't say anything about this and you'll be okay
3: Uh, right
0: like like he's gonna do that you know (laughs) (laughs) nobody's gonna believe you so meh yeah yeah Dr. Crespi has already shown that he's willing to leave somebody in a state of perpetual almost death. But he's going to let Dr. Thomas just walk around. No big deal.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, that's the way it goes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The other uh, good scene in this uh, really shot well and and kind of stands out from the rest of the movie is where we see the premature burial. There's a couple of – shots that remind me of the other movie Vampire by Carl uh, Dreyer, mm. of um, mm-hmm. the point of view looking up at the trees going by when they throw the uh, earth on the coffin it's from the POV of the coffin and the dirt obscures the camera lens and all that sort of thing
0: which is really cool to see yeah. in a movie in 1935 in particular because at this point you know I mean there are some great camera movement things happening in a lot of movies but not to this extent I feel like it's a pretty unique POV for something like this yeah, and and the very fast cutting too. As that scene is wrapping up and the bells are ringing, you know, we cut to Doctor Crespi. we cut to Estelle, we t- cut to the pastor or the father or whatever, and they just keep back and back, and it just continues to speed up and speed up and speed up. It's like the sense of panic that we're getting communicated to us through the editing, and it's it's really good. It's very well thought out.
2: And uh, one of the shots that um, that stood out to me that can go by without you really thinking about it is for one brief moment, it shows Dwight Fry locked up in the closet, which is kind of a premature burial in a way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that just goes flying by and they only show it once.
0: I thought it was real. This movie has a lot of really smart filmmaking in it. And it, it bums me out that not nearly as many people really know about it and it hasn't received as much attention. I don't think the director did a lot of genre work and really, can we even say this is a horror movie? Probably not. But, i feel like this movie would have a lot for horror fans and fans of classic you know monster movies and classic film in general to really latch on to i don't know why it's kind of been forgotten
2: well the, the director uh, john Auer, he directed the, uh, probably the only really other known movie that he uh, directed was called the city that never sleeps mm-hmm. which was a film noir type of movie and that's a uh, uh, I can see some film noir in, in this movie, the way uh, oh sure the shadow work and all that.
0: I agree with you. The The way the shadows looked. And I'm a little disappointed that the transfers that are available for home viewing aren't as crisp. But when I saw it in the theater, I was quite taken by the cinematography and, and the way things were lit. And even the production design, which really, from what I understand, most of the set was kind of stuff from a play, from, from the theater. Yeah. But even the way they designed everything and, and they placed, like, the placards in the hallway that the doctor comes walking out, you know, down towards the end. And we've got the nurse facing us saying, boy, I sure wish something exciting would happen around here. And here comes this guy that they thought was dead walking up behind her. <laughs> Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> even that, it, it, it feels very noir-like. I could totally see that.
2: Yeah. That scene was was eerie because he was like a, a zombie. He looked like a zombie coming down yeah. the corridor behind the nurse. But I, I couldn't help but wonder, how did he get away from Dwight and the other guy? <laughs> I mean, <Right. laughs> they just let him go? Or I, I never could figure that out.
0: All the way back to him rising off the table, very zombie-like. And maybe that's why the Northwest Film Center decided to pair this with White Zombie. Yeah, try to yeah, That was the link. Because I never understood the connection. But maybe that's it. Yeah. <laughs> he went for a little walk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to know more about John uh, Our. I, Looking at his credits and the films that he was involved with, I don't know anything about these movies. I knew about The City That Never Sleeps, uh, but I'm real curious to learn more about some of these movies. Again, add them to the list. Thunderbird sounds really interesting. It uh, looks like it's a war thriller kind of movie. Just a handful of them. The Flame has a great title, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> so I'd like to see some of these movies.
2: Yeah, he probably did a lot of TV, too, I would imagine.
0: Sure. Well, didn't they all yeah. eventually yeah. from that time?
2: had to keep working.
0: Yeah, he, he, he was a producer on a, a couple of TV series and, and such. So.
2: I think what struck me uh, when I saw this movie again recently was that it was shot in 1935, but it seems older. Because you think of The Bride of Frankenstein as the same year. Huh. And it, I don't know, maybe because it's public domain prints, I don't know, but and there's no music at all in it.
0: Yeah, at the very, very end we get just a touch of music, but yeah, there's really no score.
2: Yeah. And the other thing is that some of the things that they do, they take their sweet time doing. Like Dr. Cresby has his coat changed in the office and they just just go through it the whole thing, mm-hmm. you know, and very slowly. And there's another time where he's sitting at his desk writing out something for what seems like a long time. <laughs> and just in silence, you know, it's just kind of uh, strange that they didn't try to speed up those sequences. It just kind of lays itself out like that very slowly, the whole movie, for the most part.
0: The pace is very deliberate. And yeah. some of the things that Von Stroheim does reminds me of things that Peter Cushing would do later, where he would mm-hmm. he would find a prop to kind of play with a little bit and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, that, that weird skeleton of a, I guess it's a premature birth, you know, the, the, yeah, the baby the, skeleton. With the big head in the
2: back. Yeah. I wonder what that was, too. It, it
0: even makes it into the movie poster. I don't, but it really doesn't Real? have anything to do with the film. It's really <laughs> weird. But, I mean, it's just sitting there and he kind of taps it on the head every once in a while. And the end of Dr. Crespi, not the end of the movie, but. At one point in the film when Dr. Crespi is kind of sliding down a wall, the statue of it is like right there behind him, or the shadow, excuse me, of it is right there behind him. And, and again, I, I don't know why.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is strange because I was trying to get – uh, it never shows it in close-up or anything. It's just in the background. Right. And it makes me wonder uh, – I mean, it's a little bit too early, but I don't know if they got it from Roswell or what, <laughs> but it looks like an alien's – thing. It looks like an alien body. from
0: It's odd. Yeah, it's odd,
2: strange thing for him to have in his office. Right.
0: This does have a few filler moments. I mean, you're talking about that. There's also the guy who's waiting for his wife to give birth. I mean, that whole bit, which is kind of funny, kind of played for laughs a little bit. But, you know, it it feels a little extra, a little fluff. But if you didn't have those things, this movie would end up being like half an hour long. And then they wouldn't have shown it in Mm. the theater. (laughs) What a way for television to become a thing, I guess.
2: Yeah, it's not much more than an hour, I don't no, think.
0: No, yeah, it's, it's very short. And I know the movie did get some ballyhoo when it came out. I found uh, a picture uh, during this film's original release of the Rialto Theater uh, in New York showing this film. And the, the entranceway into the movie theater, they've got Von Stroheim and Poe's Crime of Dr. Crespi. How would you like to see your own burial? And big you know, tall (laughs) posters on the walls as you walk in. I mean, they made a big deal out of the original release. So again, Oh, here's another tagline. Phantom corpse haunts the morgue. I mean, that's great. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's a title in itself.
0: Yeah. Somebody write that down. (laughs) (laughs) So again, I wish this movie had better distribution and maybe there's not a good print of it out there to make a transfer of. Although I swear it was a film print that I saw when I saw it. So maybe,
2: well, considering its age, it's possible that the original negative of it just disintegrated because that was before uh, they had more permanent stock, I would think. Yeah. So probably, there's probably no negative of it anymore.
0: I, I wouldn't be surprised. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's such a short film. I feel like, hmm. See, this is why I'm glad there's, there's horror hosts like you that are willing to or, or wanting to kind of go beyond the the 50 or 60 movies that... and. This isn't a dig or a knock against anybody, but there's 50 or 60 movies that horror hosts play a lot because you know they're in the public domain. They're easy to get your hands on if you buy a Mill Creek set or go to archive.org. So when somebody like you kind of goes out of their way to find these little nuggets out there and bring them to our attention, man, it's just great. I mean, you're, you're doing you're doing the work, man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm like uh, I've said many times. I've been inspired so much by the forgotten horrors. Uh, series of books Mm -hmm. because i I wouldn't have myself been aware of a lot of these movies unless i had those books and then the trick is to find them such as double door (laughs) did you get to see that yet
0: Uh, i haven't watched it yet it is on my list uh again the infamous list but double door is actually up for a rally nomination so i probably ought to watch it (laughs) Uh, the forgotten horrors books are amazing uh we actually had you on the show we were talking earlier when was the last time we had you on the show before i started recording and it was when we had you on with michael h price of the forgotten horrors book series and that was back in episode 354 of mkr which is uh, towards the end of january of this year so it's been quite a while but go back and check out that episode to learn a little bit more about the forgotten horror series They're pretty solid yeah yeah really by all good means, books. yeah Really, really good books. And the Forgotten Horrors podcast, I mean, they do that just in audio form. They find a movie and really kind of break it down. So, Speaking of
2: the subject, and dare I say, <laughs> apropos of nothing. Oh. <laughs> when I was looking at Van Stroheim, uh, Van Stroheim in the movie, all I could think of is he'd make a great Mr. Freeze.
0: <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> God, he would have never done it, but that would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine he'd ever do anything like that, but <laughs> just because just of, yeah. But wow, that would have been great. Now, there's another
2: bizarre movie that he was in, even earlier than this, called The Great Gabo. I don't know if you've okay. ever heard of that. It's one of those no. uh, scary ventriloquist dummy movies. <laughs> it's a,
0: Are you serious? It, no,
2: it's, I think you can probably find it uh, easily enough on um, the archive, maybe. Um, I think it's I think it's like 1929 or something like that. And it's partly a musical, which makes it really strange because he's a stage performer. So unfortunately, we get saddled with these kind of, you know, silly old um, full scale musical numbers on stage. But it's one of those things where the dummy (laughs) is like, you know, taking him over or it's like a separate personality and he's crazy, which he's good at. But it's a, it's a very, <laughs> very strange movie.
0: Uh, so I've just i I've got the internet here in front of me, and I just did some digging. The Great Gabo came out in 1929. Yeah, yeah And cool. if you just type in The Great Gabo and, and do an image search, there are images of Von Stroheim with this controlist dummy that is missing an eye in several shots for some reason, sitting on his lap and kind of looking around a corner while the cigarette dangles out of Von Stroheim's uh, – just, wow – yeah, this uh, it is <laughs> this looks very really strange, odd. Movie.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: hey, he got top billing, so you
2: know. My point of view, it would have been much improved if you could just edit out the musical numbers, because <laughs> so, the film kind of stops dead whenever uh, you get to them. But for
0: 1929, it's a musical, huh? Wow, so a sound film. Yep. Well, they
2: they wow. shot the coconuts, the Marx Brothers in 1929.
0: Oh, well, that's true, I guess. And that
2: was in New York, too, because the Marx Brothers were performing Animal Crackers at night and filming the coconuts in the daytime.
0: Interesting. Which, when you're a working actor, that's that's what you do. I know Legosi did that, too. Yeah. He would do stage work during the day or vi- and shoot at night or vice versa. Uh, um, you know, I've been reading a lot of Gary Rhodes's Legosi books and, and talk about how he would do that. He'd go across town and you know do a rehearsal and then go across town again and shoot for a little bit and back and forth back and forth and that to me I mean I I would have a hard enough time remembering the lines for one project <laughs> <laughs> you know trying to remember what you need to do for the next but I mean this is their job so I get it but still it's pretty impressive
2: yeah yeah and, and exhausting
0: yeah well it looks like the great Gabo is oh Kino put it out so it, it is available out there now people can see it I'll have to track it down yeah, add that to the yeah. list too
2: I don't know what <laughs> studio made that one or if it was an independent
0: Pre code film, okay. James Cruz Productions, whoever that is, is who put it together. And it was distributed by Sano Art Worldwide Pictures. Again, don't know who that is either. James
2: Cruz was a famous uh, silent movie director. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he was in an early version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as an actor.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Like the
2: 1911 version or something, somewhere around in there.
0: Oh. oh. Yeah, in his day, okay. he,
2: was, he was something.
0: See, this is. <laughs> I'm going to be able to look at my list of movies to see, and and I'll be able to look at it and and tell you where in that to-watch list I talked to you. (laughs) Because, you know, all all the really obscure stuff or the stuff that I've never heard of at all, it's all going to be right there. Because now I want to see these James Cruise uh, films or uh, productions. I want to see, you know, The Great Guy Bowen. And if he did... Jekyll and Hyde, If that's is that a film that he did? Yeah, it was a short one. Was it a silent one? I'd love to see that if it's available yeah. I'm not
2: sure, but I think it's one where he played, it was two people. One played Jekyll, one played Hyde.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. It was in the early 1900s, like 1911 or something like that.
0: Well, I'll have to check it out and track it down.
2: And, of course, if anybody wants to see Van Stroheim and something else, they can see The Lady and the Monster. Yeah. Uh, the Donovan's Brain movie, basically. I think of the first time anybody tried to do Donovan's Brain as a film. The Republic Studios. that Mm
7: -hmm.
2: one, And that has Richard Arlen in it, who was in the Island of Lost Souls as the good guy.
0: Yeah, there you go. It all comes back to that one. Which was, I think, the first film you did on the show with me, wasn't it? Uh, Yeah, I think think so. I think so. Yeah. It might have been my book. It might have been your book. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, speaking of your book... (laughs) I don't know if you did that on purpose or not, but speaking of your book.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Let's speak of my book.
0: Yeah, yeah, you have a new book.
2: Yes, different from what I've done, but it's out there.
0: The previous two books have been uh, kind of like a reflection on what it was like being a monster kid growing up or a collection of movies that you've talked about on the show, but the new book, it's fiction.
2: Yes, let's hope so. (laughs) What's it called? Outlandish Adventures, and it's sort of a pulpish type of fiction it's none of it's to be taken seriously obviously i just felt like writing some kind of oddball stories with i hope uh, a twist at the end just to amuse myself it's not a big volume by any means and the longest uh, story ended is the uh, fussy eagleton secret bus boy the rest of them are uh, just odd little stories that came to mind and i just kept going i says all right i think i'll publish this
0: well, the Fussy Eagleton, Secret Bus Boy. Now, the stories in this are they the stories that you've done as a podcast before, or as an audio production before? Are they different stories?
2: Well, the Fussy Eagleton one is a variation of the first Fussy Eagleton uh, podcast that I did.
9: Okay.
2: Uh, to do with the the Mole Men, but okay, um, it's different enough so that you you know you wouldn't uh, you. You wouldn't have to recognize it from the other one. It it would seem different enough. Mm -hmm. And all the other ones are just brand new things that I thought of at the time.
0: The first time ever. Yes. They're in this book. Yes. I just love the titles. Ticket to Die. (laughs) How's My Driving? Don't Get Stuck in Traffic Behind This Guy. I mean, this is great. (laughs) Well, I have the book as an ebook uh, for myself, so you can get it for your, your Kindle, your e-reader. But it's also available as a paperback for nine ninety nine. Uh, you've independently published this, I assume. Is that right?
2: Yeah, it's on Amazon, like my other two.
0: Okay, so I will make sure there's a link in the show notes for people to pick this up on their own if they're interested in in supporting you. And why wouldn't they be? If they're interested in supporting MKR, why wouldn't they be? You know, I'll make sure there's a link for people to pick this up and you know, add it to their bookshelf. Like I said, I've got it as an ebook. I dig it. It's got the monster kid radio seal of approval.
2: (laughs) And I'm working on another one now.
0: Are you now? Okay. See, I I seem to recall that at one point, I think it was with monster kidding. Weren't you kind of saying, I don't know if I'm going to do anything else.
2: Well, I'm working on one called lurking in the late night. I love that title. When I see my uh, show on the different um, public access stations, just to see when they're showing me. They're always showing me, you know, midnight, three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> stuff like that. And um, it we kind of reminded me of the days before cable and stuff, we used to sneak up at night to watch a horror film on TV with the volume down low so your parents didn't catch you. huh. So I thought, I thought of myself, I'm still lurking in the late night and, uh, <laughs> So I decided to uh, start writing about some more movies, the ones that I'm trying to keep it to ones that aren't that well-known, and that the kind of things that you would see probably in the middle of the night if you're going to see them at all. Okay. It's an eclectic thing, much like the first book I did, uh, B-movie Museum, where it's primarily uh, just about the movies. I mean, I've really just started it, so it's going to be a long time, probably before anybody sees it, if they want to see it, but... That's in the works.
0: Okay. What else is coming up for you? Uh, you're you're available on a few different, I guess, networks or places online for people to see the show. How is the show going? So so going strong.
2: Yeah, I mean we're in. She's what is this twelfth uh, year? Yeah. Nice. Year twelve. Well, we're on uh, any any station that wants to get us from Peg Media, and we're also on the Betamax TV, and we're on the. Uh, well, now I'm getting confused, but. I don't know if it's the Monster Channel or Eerie Late Night Horror Show, but it's going to be on Roku Okay. under one of those names. But I, I think you're supposed to look for the Eerie Late Night.
0: I'll uh, do some digging myself. Uh, Michael and I were talking before we started recording about where we can find this on Roku. And, and as of this recording, it just kind of... St- happened it's just now starting so i'll do some digging and uh, i'll come in at the end of the, the show of, of this episode and make sure people know about it i'm sure by the time this actually gets put onto the podcast because we're actually recording about a month ahead of time people will have found it but just in case if you have a roku it should be available by now and i'll make sure people can find it
2: okay yeah i'd uh, be interested to know myself
0: yeah D- yeah <laughs> i'll let you know get <laughs> yeah. back to yeah. you. Gee, thanks <laughs> Well, I was thrilled, like I said, to kick off Edgar August Poe month with you because again, you're the one that made me aware of this movie. And even though it does have a very deliberate pace and, you know, the transfer is probably not as good as it could be, I still enjoy this movie a lot. I, I loved White Fry in it. I think Von Stroheim is great. The connection to Poe itself, pretty slim, but that's kind of what you get at this point in Hollywood history. And I mean, even now, really, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, I don't know if there've really been some really solid Edgar Allan Poe adaptations out there that that really ring true to the source material. maybe
2: the closest one is uh Corman's House of Usher,
0: yeah, I guess pretty close. Uh, it's pretty close but like the pit and the pendulum is way off yeah or, way off um uh, tales of terror which i'm covering later this month with dr Gang Green, kind of mixes and matches whatever's left over of poe that hasn't yeah. like Corman didn't do at that point haunted palace isn't even a poe story <laughs> Yeah, i
2: know it's long crap
0: which you know <laughs> yeah
2: usually if anybody can you know tie their thing to a poe story they'll they'll do it there's uh, another obscure movie that's not Horror film, really. It's called Manfish. With Lon Chaney Jr. With Lon Chaney and Victor Jory. And it's more of an adventure movie, but a murder mur- movie too. But it only has uh, has a vague, vague, vague connection to the telltale heart and uh, the gold bug.
0: Right. Um, I That's one of those ones that's available on these 50 packs that you get from Mill Creek Media. Or yeah. is it Mill Creek? Whatever. That, that's set. Uh, and that's how I first saw it. And I thought, well, Lon Chaney signed me up and. It is more of an adventure story. There is a skeleton at one point, and, and Lon Cheney seems to be playing a version of Lenny, almost, uh, in the film to go back to uh, uh, his of Mice and Men days. But I really kind of like that film.
2: Yeah, I, I would uh, probably show that um, because it's got just enough of the oddity in it to... Mm-hmm. You know, for people to to look at, because it is a you know it is murder in it. Right. And it does have those very very thin strands related to Poe.
0: And it's got John Bromfield on it too, and he yeah. was in Revenge of the Creature, yeah. so they yeah. have a, a monster movie connection there.
2: Yeah. For once,
0: Cheney lives. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, he actually comes out ahead. He, he comes out ahead. So
2: it's kind of nice. Let Cheney win. Win for Cheney.
0: <laughs> I, I like Manfish quite a bit. I'm glad you brought it up because. I, I, again, this is one that does not get much attention. and I, I don't know if, again, there's weird distribution things going on with it or what. Yeah, and Barbara um, Nichols
2: has a small part in it, too, which is yeah. the oddity in it. Uh, it's a strange film. Uh, that was W. Lee Wilder, Billy Wilder's um, brother, directed it. The guy that did what? The Snow Creature and Killers from Space. and Okay. That might be one of his better movies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a good film. I recommend it. and I definitely recommend the crime of Dr. Crespi. If nothing else, you get to see Von Stroheim play a character that might not have been too far from his onset personality when he was directing. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, yeah. <laughs> All right, so do you have a website or something I can send people to, or should we uh, use your Facebook page? What, what's the best way for people to find you online?
2: Well, under my name okay. is the Dr. Dreck Facebook page and a Sideshow Cinema page on Facebook.
0: That, that's your movie label, right? Right. Anything new coming up movie-wise that people can look forward to
2: yet? I'm slowly putting together all the old short films that I did back in the uh, late 70s to the mid-80s. Okay. Actually shot on film, on Super 8 sound film. Wow. Uh, I can't really afford to go all out and restore them, but I can at least get them transferred decently. Mm -hmm. And so I'm making two volumes of uh, the collections of uh, the ones that I've got that are – that are worth preserving. Mm-hmm. And um, they'll be uh, coming up on uh, Create Space again for people to see. I don't even know how to qu- uh, qualify myself, really, because I don't do you know, retro movies like uh, Christopher Mim and, and, I guess, Joshua Kennedy, which I enjoy mm-hmm. very much. I just do odd things, but they always have some element of the fantastic in them, or the strange or the weird, but they're primarily supposed to be funny. So mm-hmm. that's up to the person watching it, whether they think <laughs> it's funny or just stupid.
0: But, well, I, I can vouch for the funny, uh, although Evan Straw is a little less yeah. funny and a little bit more creepy, which I really dug. I think that was the first one of yours that I watched. Yeah, So. Yeah. I'd recommend that one if you're looking for something a little bit more creepy, haunted house-like, really interesting. But otherwise, it, it, they've got this kind of zany, kind of B-movie feel, but they're not set up as like retro films. They, they, they're contemporary movies, but no, I, I recommend them. So. And a lot of them are available for streaming now, it looks like. Yes. All right, on Amazon? Yes.
2: Yep, the newest one just became available, uh, Crawlers, which is a science fiction comedy. Yeah, I uh, will be working on that for now. Uh, just trying to get those two volumes done.
0: Very cool. Well, I wish you the best, man. I, I am hopeful that uh, the current book does really, really well because I, I like your writing and I want more of it out in the world. And I'm, I'm eager to see the next book when that eventually happens. And got to have you back on the show. I mean, I love talking to you, man. I would love to have you back on down the line. Let's not wait another like eight months, so. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it sounded like a pregnancy.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I think it's time. (laughs) Five. Five more minutes. (laughs) Nice. Well, thanks a lot for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, watch out for those surgeons.
2: Yes, I will. (laughs) They
10: look like him. legend of Frankenstein once again brings terror and nightmare to the screen in Lady Frankenstein. Joseph Cotton is Baron Frankenstein. But the his face! devil with his face, I don't care what he looks like. I want him to live. Sarah Bay is Lady Frankenstein. That is what they call your father's life's work, a monster! And they're right!
1: They are not right!
10: She's beautiful. She's evil and she'll do anything for love would you like to have my body bend to you would you like to make love to me she creates a new more terrifying monster and only the monster she creates can satisfy her strange desires using her beauty and her scalpel she cuts deeply into men's hearts
8: yes you're right
10: kill him. there has never been a movie like lady frankenstein rated R.
1: Konga. Not since King Kong has the screen exploded with such mighty fury. Defying bullets, bombs, rockets, standing a hundred feet tall, sending an entire civilization into
0: panic. Konga. In color and spectamation. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for listening and tagging along and making Monster Kid Radio part of your podcast diet. I really appreciate it. I know there are only so many hours in the day and tons of podcasts, so that you've chosen to listen to this one, well, it means a lot to me. Thank you for doing that. really appreciate it. I'm excited for a bunch of changes that are happening here on Monster Kid Radio. You know, with the unemployment thing happening where I'm unemployed, I haven't actually started getting unemployment yet, but I'm unemployed and... That whole thing just life's been kind of crazy. And I've been able to, I don't know, kind of focus and center myself a little bit more on some projects that I want to do with the podcast. Updating the Patreon campaign was one of those things. Making sure that everybody knows about an upcoming project or two, that's something else. And that's something that actually I want to do with the emailing list that we have set up. Head over to monsterkidradio.net. There's a place for you to put in your email address to put yourself on the Monster Kid Radio email list. I know it says it's a monthly e newsletter. It's not monthly. I haven't been doing it in months. But I do want to get that up and running again just to kind of let people know what's going on in the world of Monster Kid Radio and all its associated. Programs, products, podcasts, and so on. So that's something you can find on our website. Something else you can find on our website, our email address. It's monsterkidradio at gmail.com and our voicemail line. You can call and leave a message at five zero three four seven nine five six five seven. That's four seven nine5 MKR. You can always call in and talk about this episode of monster kid radio or any of the previous episodes. And there's like 380 of them now. So anything you want to talk about or just anything monster kid related or call in to talk about famous monsters of film land. Like Kenny's asking you to whatever. Just call in and let us know what's going on with you. If there are any events coming up or any events that you're at right now that you think Monster Kids might want to hear about or might want to prepare to get to, call in or write in. And I'll make sure we put you on an upcoming episode of Monster Kid Radio. Now, you might have noticed there's no feedback this week, and that's because, well, it's really late. It's 2.43 a.m. Thursday morning, and uh, I still haven't edited any of that. So I'm going to sit on that until next week, but I do have like a good half hour or so of feedback with myself and Brenda and we'll be putting that into next week's episode as well as the next installment in Edgar August Poe month which is the Roger Corman film Tales of Terror
5: Every drop of blood feels the freezing paralysis of fear almost stopping your heart As Edgar Allan Poe unfolds his tales of terror, you will meet the master of the mansion, who loved and protected his wife with the strength of a supernatural love, even beyond life itself.
7: I am in command here. You will do as I say. I shall take what I desire your body and your soul if I demand it.
10: Help! Help! (laughs) Help!
5: Then you'll enjoy the Black Cat's sardonically humorous tale. It all started at the Vintners' convention, where the lover of wine met the professional wine taster and introduced him to his wife, a darling who delighted in dalliance.
7: What kind of a man are you anyway? Make love to my wife and doesn't even talk to me. You're insane! That may be, but very clever. Mm.
1: Help! Help! Help!
5: In this monstrous mausoleum of the living, you will witness fury far worse than a woman scorned. The fury of a dead woman's jealousy.
0: I like having multiple doctors in my life. It helps me feel Horror hosts healthy, and next week we've got another doctor coming on. We've got Doctor Gain Green, my friend Larry Underwood, He's joining me to talk about tales of terror next week here on the show. That's going to be a lot of fun. I want to thank again everybody for listening to the show, and I want to put a shout out to the band. Penelope Cruise Control, the album. This is the voice of Penelope Cruise Control just came out last month, and they're allowing us to play some of their music here on the show. I opened the show with the song Eye on You from the new album. This is the voice of Penelope Cruise Control. Check them out at penelopecruisecontrol.bandcamp.com. When you're done listening to this podcast, all the original content of which is owned by Monster Kid Radio, LLC, which is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song "I on You. Like I said, that belongs to Penelope Cruz Control from the album. This is the voice of Penelope Cruz Control over at penelopecruisecontrol.bandcamp.com. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. My name is Derek Kim Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.